the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Although money spent on holiday gifts increases yearly, and this year probably will not be an exception, about 20% of all Americans say they plan to start spending less. The founder of what is called the Church of Stop Shopping is hoping to expand that trend and not simply during the holiday season. This week on Challenge 2.0, we continue to explore the work of a man named Reverend Billy and why he believes our future is dependent on us spending less, not more. So we're delighted to have two guests who have been very dedicated to these issues of re-examining consumerism, what that says about us, and the impact that that's having on our larger environment. And they are Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping and Sabatri D, also of the Church of Stop Shopping. Thank you both very much for joining us for this program. Hallelujah. Good to be here. Well, tell us how Bill Talon, the actor, became... Reverend Billy, and how you both ended up uh, founding the Church of Stop Shopping. Uh, what motivated you to make that shift? I think that it had to do with uh, a severe midlife crisis, <laughs> and which I don't think I don't think your viewing public wants to hear about that. But uh, in People Magazine, that's that's what you always you, you the story is always a crisis, right? I, I was um, taken to Times Square by a teacher named Sidney Lanier and um, uh, an Episcopal priest, um, somewhat lapsed, I would say. <laughs> but as he would say, not defrocked. <laughs> uh, Sidney took me to, to Times Square, set me in front of the Disney store, and he said, okay, our theology is this. Mickey Mouse is the devil. Everything in this store is a sweatshop product. Disney's ruining Times Square, kicking out the little shops. And um, so he got me going, sidewalk preaching in Times Square. And um, I was personally motivated to do it because I was concerned about, about the marketization of American life. I was concerned about how lonely people were getting and mm. uh, bombasted by, by thousands of advertising events every day. And nowhere is it more concentrated than in Times Square. Mm. You, know, you, got, you got ads and, and signage glowing and running around all the way up to the top of 20-story high buildings. So uh, there I was in this colorful canyon 
with this 12 foot tall statue of Mickey Mouse behind me. And that's where I started. Mickey Mouse is the Antichrist. You don't want to bring your child into this den of iniquity. What reaction did scaring you get? Tourists, you know, scaring, scaring the parents away. And uh, Mickey Mouse is, when you take off the comic veneer, a nightmare. If you really look at the orbs on that face, uh, Mickey's, a, Mickey's, Mickey's a, uh, some, something out of a Hieronymus Bosch triptych, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of fun there. It took a long time to learn how to project into the white noise, the pure white noise of Times Square, such that anybody could hear me. Mm. But after a while, people started clamping. I started getting my rhythm, or as the preachers say, getting my whoop. And when that happened, the rhythm, I started hitting my, uh, people started clamping around uh, me. And, and that was the beginning of the Stop Shopping Choir. And then Sabatry came into my life. And so Sabatry, uh, as you looked at how to evolve this, Mm -hmm. uh, what motivated you? Uh, what developed your passion in this direction? Um, you know, I came up in the arts and I, I think I felt um, like Billy did, that it was a little bit of an empty vessel. I mean, it was becoming, um, you know, it was so it's so industrial. The arts are so industrial, you know, really at any level, even if you're working in small theater in New York, it's it's like there are these very clear delineated tracks. And I, I noticed straight away how, um, segregated the arts were and I I didn't want any part of it I, I really wanted I, I would be on the street in New York and just feel alive and feel the energy of, of plurality and democracy and people jiving and talking and banging into each other and I'd go into a theater and it would just be like passive silent white people watching a show so um, you know I think I was always motivated by, uh, you know, this value-driven sort of integrated life that I was looking for, which activism really showed to me. And mm -hmm. um, it, uh, so, yeah, I was I was just motivated by my uh, my values, to be honest. Um, and of course, you know, the late '90s in New York, uh, we were witnessing this incredible gentrification and this sweeping away of decades of culture, centuries of culture, just in one fell swoop. And you know, it was coming from the top, and uh, it was all around us. And 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 it was just very sad. I mean, because you feel the stories draining away. You feel like all this possibility, immigrants from hundreds of countries, you know, hundreds of years of immigration into New York, all those stories, all that knowledge, all those details, all that granular, um, you know, memory and, and just being wiped away by the gap and Starbucks. And like, I, I, th I thought, is this really what we want? Is this the mm -hmm. pinnacle of human evolution? the gap are you kidding me um so uh you know i was very motivated motivated by those things as well as like you know they're just a very obvious like the problematic aspect of of capitalism and neoliberalism and, and those economies and what they do on the other side of the world so really trying to like to to push through that commodity wall and say like hey you know it looks like this here it looks like a pair of like really neutral chinos but over there it looks like a girl who's not going to school. It looks like a girl whose eyes are ruined by age 15. You know what I mean? So um, really trying to bring those stories here um, as, as that uh, sort of manufacturing moved everywhere else. And you developed what you called the Stop Shopping Choir. 
And I noticed that you've had some great luminaries take part. I think Joan Baez, in fact, maybe we can just go to a quick clip of that and then come back. And I want to hear about how you decided to evolve in that direction. So let's just take a look at a sample of your uh, musical. All right. Having looked at uh, just one sample of the Stop Shopping Choir, when did you decide to add that? And have you noticed audiences react differently? And if so, how when you added that musical piece in addition to the preaching? Well, music is, you know, it's the original technology, right? Like, you know, m most scientists think we we sang before we spoke. You know, this is the thing that humans have done together probably for the longest other than, you know, sleep and make love. I mean, um, so to do it together is, a you know, it's a tremendous like homage to our species to sing together. Um, it's, it's a kind of it expresses a kind of belief in consensus and togetherness and the groupness. Um, and also, it's just it's the fastest way to someone's heart, right? Is beautiful music. There's just no way around that. This is like, it is a universal language. So I think uh, it's a pretty natural that it would come out of that. Of course, the satirical aspect with the preacher and the choir, like that, that was the, you know, original uh, sort of satirical concept, but, um, you know, that bled away pretty quickly and it became actually like a social project of like, well, what is a community and what does a community do together and and how do we express values as a group, right? We need to exercise those muscles as they're destroyed by consumerism. So, um, you know, how do we agree on what to sing about, you know, and, and, and just the act of singing together also brings us so close. Um, so there's just so many things about singing that recommend it. Um, just, you know, just on a kinesthetic, physical, somatic level, like what it does to your brain and what it does to your body and then how it um, brings you closer to other people. Um, and then, you know, its value as a medium is undeniable, right? We know, we know all about that. And Billy, when you're preaching and you bring in the choir, how does that elevate you? And what reaction do you see with the group that you're performing in front of? Well, everybody learns to shout, Earth Alleluia. And we have, so we have a, a shouting heightened, you know, of, of freewheeling choir and, and, and the audience joins in. You know, the audience feels empowered to do it too. It also makes it way more believable, right? Like, you know, the opinion of a person who actually has also 25 people with mm -hmm. him or her, is much more important because yeah. there's plurality in that opinion, right? Like these people obviously agree. So already you're like dealing with a group who says something. Just wanted to throw that in. Thank you. <laughs> well, you've taken you've taken your work uh, 
because I think to just call it a performance uh, underestimates the impact of it. But you've taken your work on the road. And one that I think of uh, in exploring some of what you've done is when you went to the biggest mall, what's sometimes called a cathedral of consumerism, uh, the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, let's quickly look at a little video from that, because I thought your approach was just amazing. But let's go to a little video of that just briefly. Billy and Salvatore, what did you want to achieve there? And what do you think you did achieve? Well, the symbolic invasion of the Mall of America. Um, go to the cathedral, you know, to take over the entire country. Go to the, go to the center of the seat of power. Overtake the castle. So, uh, you know, you got people flying in from Asia to shop at, the, at, at that mall. They land in Minneapolis and they rent a bus and they go to that mall. We felt the importance of it as we, as we approached it. We approached it from performing in Minneapolis proper. Mm -hmm. And how many people came with us? It was it 70 or 80 people from yeah. the neighborhoods of, of, of Minneapolis invaded with us. And that was important to pick a big busload of local people because after all, uh, that mall all the uh, human scale shops that were killed mm. by this mm. aircraft carrier size behemoth with yeah. its own church, its own hospital, its own. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's yeah. pretending to be a neighborhood. It's pretending to be an internal city. And of course it isn't. It's, it's like, how do you interrupt the hypnosis, right? How do you break into that hypnotic, compliant, hyper-conformist uh, Christmas culture, right? In which everyone is just doing it because they're supposed to, because they have to, because there's pressure to do it. It's an assumption we make about each other. Uh, children make it of their parents, brothers make it of their sisters, you know, this Christmas pressure. And how do you interrupt it in such a way that people uh, realize they're hypnotized or are given permission to do something else or um, even just are self-conscious for a brief second and realize, oh God, yeah, I am, I am shopping. I really am shopping. Or, um, you know, I just think always of like mother, I, you know, I grew up with a single mom and like Christmas was rough for her, you mm -hmm. know, four kids trying to buy presents for them. You know, it makes me cry really to think about it. Like what kind of pressure people get under at Christmas and like, how do you get out of that, you know? And how do we create and normalize other ways of giving? Like give each other our time, you know, yes. do something, to, learn to do something together. And this all sounds kind of hokey and sentimental, but it actually isn't, you know, for us to really like look into each other's eyes and spend time together, you know, ultimately, if we could normalize that as a gift, you know, 
that would be a big deal, you know? And so, uh, yeah, us just breaking into that hypnosis for a second at the Mall of America is like, that's what we're trying to do there, you know? And I think it's sometimes effective. I've, you know, we meet people all the time who saw us in a mall or saw us in that very charged retail space. And, and we're like, whoa, I didn't, it just, I don't know, just kind of woke me up. <laughs> I think that's what we're going for there. You have mentioned something before, and I think that uh, you talked about a mall being created as essentially a pseudo neighborhood, a commons, and yeah. yet you've said it's not at all. Could you talk a little bit about that and uh, how you've tried to transform that and how you think we need to transform that? Well, it's no accident that in the rise of the uh, mall and now the Amazon delivery system economy, that what has suffered is the real commons, the plazas, the parks, uh, the in-between spaces of our towns and cities where uh, people, um, well, the history of the commons is that it was the green place, the center of town, mm -hmm. you know, and you could tie up your horse there and walk around and do what you wanted, tie your wagon there. And it was also uh, traditional that people uh, perform there for each other. There would, there would be performances, sometimes snake oil salesmen, the, the, um, the, the precedent was established for Donald Trump, the snake oil salesman. Can I, can I put the ad in there? Have I upset some of your Trumper public? Um, but the, the, uh, the commons as a real place where people volunteer uh, the gift of their presence and accept the gifts of other people's presence mm -hmm. where there are strangers and you're inviting those strangers to be strangers with you. Mm -hmm. And um, the, you're making decisions that are wholly democratic uh, and you build up trust. Um, that's a completely different picture. And, and, and it's a very nourishing thing. It's, you, you know, just the notion of it is, is, um, it's people giving to each other. It's the gift economy. It's the heart of a healthy neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in, in a mall, you're, you know, we were escorted out of that mall by, I think that's in the tape, isn't it? By, it is. Yes. Uh, scores and it was a militarized situation. They just, there were, there was a policeman behind every product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, they walked us all the way to our bus and uh, watched us leave the parking lot. So uh, the corporations being in charge, taking profits from what you do is radically different than volunteering your giving to one another. Yeah, and, the, and, and what is freedom, right? The illusion of freedom. So I, I think about that a lot in retail space. You know, we feel, we feel free in some way. I am free to make this choice or that choice. Mm -hmm. I am free to buy this sweater or those pants. Um, it, it, it does give you a feeling, a sensation of freedom in certain ways, right? However, it is not freedom. Um, and starting from the people who are sometimes chained to their sewing machines, making those products, all the way to like the limitation on our speech in those spaces, right? Not free, uh, you know, and all along the way, it's, it's funneled through uh, extremely oppressive um, and not very liberated situations. Mm -hmm. So 
um, that feeling of freedom, you know, that you would that you would want in a commons where you're again like flexing and exercising the muscles of democracy. You know, you have an illusion of that in those spaces, but it is illusory. You know, and and the minute all you have to do is raise your voice a little bit and say say a little bit the wrong thing, even just we've been arrested saying um, shopping. We've we've been arrested. <laughs> saying Starbucks too loud in a Starbucks. So it's a very controlled environment, not free at all. And and I think that um, the commons is is so critical to our democracy and to our imaginative um, potential. And we don't even we don't even recognize that we've lost it. And at a level, it seems like you're aiming at a real conversion of the heart. And I think of what I think you've called your Beatitudes of Bilelessness. What ultimately motivated you to come up with that, uh, to try to change some consciousness? And what impact do you see that have? Well, the Beatitudes of Bilelessness uh, uh, is tied, of course. It's a, it's a spoof, a riff on... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, one of the one of the parts of the New Testament where the the Bible scholars say that this Jesus of Nazareth character said this. There's other part. There are other quotes of Jesus that are obviously added on by mm -hmm. others, sometimes as much as a century later. Uh, but uh, that is probably a, a, a wrap-up of his of his work based on uh, the meek shall inherit the earth and and you know the 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 just the radical nature of the the things that he said um so in a a an environment of totalitarian consumerism um uh you you have a uh, a, a crowded atmosphere of over-ritualization when everything is on the market everything has a dollar sign mm -hmm. you can't you can't walk 10 feet from your front door without being confronted with when, when that is the case then you have the problem in in modern life that is similar to what uh the radical uh people around jesus of nazareth were trying to solve two thousand years ago every day was ritualized in those days every every everything was Everything was locked down, and it locked elites in place, and it and it meant that you had to you had to do certain things, or you or you'd be or you'd be killed. Mm -hmm. It was the Romans, but it was also the local people cooperating with the Romans. It was also it was also the religion. Just everything was coming down on people, and finding ways to break out of that is what we were trying to do. Uh, similar, similarly, we were trying to try to try to break out of our over ritualization. In the Beatitudes of Bilesons, we're, 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 we're saying, blessed are you if you're in a an SUV in a Christmas traffic jam full of Christmas presents that you never wanted to buy. You know, we're just we're just full of full of we're trying to reverse everything mm -hmm. the, way, the way Jesus did. And we're not Christians. And um, um, although our 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 movie uh, from 2007 was called G What Will Jesus Buy, which we saw. The, the the Mall of America excerpt is from that film. Um, um, but but Jesus was a great a great revolutionary and and learning from him is something that we did with 
the Beatitudes. In your role as a street preacher, from what you've seen, from what you've learned, from what you've felt, what advice would you pass on to uh, preachers, uh, faith leaders in a variety of different denominations that you think they're missing that might help their impact in changing lives and changing hearts? Well, that's a tough one because um, we might have some people uh, of uh, spiritual workers listening right now. The uh, the great leap that we made was not to be nailed to a particular particular religion. Um, so once you don't have to always find a way to include a particular idea of God, mm-hmm. you know. Allah, Buddha, anybody. <laughs> Once you're free of that big narrative in the sky, it's not long before you start feeling the presence of the earth. Um, I would urge all people in all religions, that all leaders up there around the altar, turning and looking at their congregation and you know, being the wise one, right? I would urge them all, get with the earth now. Mm-hmm. If you have to keep that God with you and, you know, you're making your living that way, you've got, you've got a particular church you're, 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 you're obligated to, you can do a lot with the earth coming up into your body and into your speeches and into, into activism, because all the religions want us to live, you know, the earth is alive, we are a part of the earth, let's live together, earth hallelujah. Earth Hallelujah. And uh, Bill and Reverend Billy and Salvatore, I thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, this has been very thought provoking and informative and fun. Uh, best of wishes to you in your continuing work and to all of you watching. Uh, we thank you for joining us and hope you'll tune in again next week. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought provoking and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.